1: Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at PublishersWeekly.com slash PWRadio and also available on iTunes. I'm Rose Fox and I'm a reviews editor at Publishers Weekly.
0: And I'm Mark Rotella, senior editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from... PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world.
1: We're here for you, and we want to answer your questions, so send them to us at radio at com or tweet them to PubWeeklyRadio, that's PubWKLYRadio on Twitter.
0: Today, our very own Rose Fox will talk about editing a forthcoming anthology, Long Hidden. Then PW Nonfiction Reviews editor Jasmine Chan will tell us about gift books for the upcoming holiday season.
1: But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly Bestseller list, powered by Nielsen Bookscan big news in fiction is Stephen King is at number one for the umpteen billionth time in his career <laughs> uh, and this time it's with Dr. Sleep. This is really a return to form for King. It's the sequel to The Shining mm. and uh, it's been quite a while since that book came out and uh, he picks up uh Essentially the same story But many many years on So if you remember Young Danny Torrance Who had the psychic powers Called The Shining And was a little kid In the first book Now he's a middle aged Alcoholic um, oh. And he's, uh, he's he's got his powers and right. he's also got guilt about you know, how to use them appropriately. And he ends up actually working in a hospice where he helps to ease the passing of the terminally ill. So he figures this is the best way that he can make use of the, the psychic abilities that he has. Um, however, there is a caravan of human parasites uh, called mm. the True Knot, who are basically traveling the country looking for children with the Shining and then trying to consume their energies. So they, these are, they are really purely evil types, which is always it you know, makes for for a fun Stephen King story. Is the the good and the bad are very clearly delineated right. here?
0: Yeah, I, you know. I, my introduction to uh the shining was actually through the movie which uh, mm-hmm. I I saw before I read the book. And I know and it's been uh, coming out a, a few newspaper articles recently that uh Stephen King did not like the uh the, the movie uh version of his book and uh publicly called out you know just said that he didn't like it so much. But I went back to reading the book and I always wanted to know what happened to uh the boy.
1: Well, now you can find out Dr. Sleep is number one with a bullet, sold 133,823 copies in one week, um, wow. and that pushes Nicholas Sparks to number two. Mm. Um, in fact, I think it sold almost exactly twice as many copies as wow. the Nicholas Sparks novel. So oh, um, lots of people are, are joining you and wanting to find out what happened to Danny Torrance. And I have a couple of friends who read this. He said, it feels like Stephen King. You know, he, He's done all this very literary stuff that yeah. um, kind of got away from from his roots and now he's going back to it uh, with this particular book at least and it's making the fans very very happy
0: oh wow and anything else in fiction, or should I? we, should we move over to non-fiction? Um,
1: the only other thing to note is that October is when Christmas romances start coming out. We did a big roundup of those a couple months ago, Great. and uh, we've we've now got some showing up on the, the fiction uh, hardcover list, on the trade paper list, and on the mass market list. So for those of you who like romances with a little bit of holiday spirit, you can find them in stores starting now and going all the way through December. I'm still getting them in for review.
0: So you have a lot of... Have you seen a lot of Christmas-themed romance? Oh, this year? every year,
1: yeah. every year they come out, and in every category. So you'll have uh, historical Christmas romance, you'll have Western Christmas romance, you'll have Amish Christmas romance, <laughs> yeah. you have paranormal Christmas romance. Um, I just wrote a blog post for PWXYZ or the PW blog about uh, mashups that pull from multiple different genres, mm-hmm. not just two, but three or more. And one of those was a Seal Wolf Christmas, in which Navy SEALs. Who are also werewolves find romance at Christmas time. So,
0: oh my God! Christ,
1: Christmas can be applied to anything <laughs> oh, wow. in the romance genre, and frequently is. So there's there's uh, there's something out there for every every fan of mistletoe.
0: Oh my gosh! Wow looking over at nonfiction we've got bill o'reilly's latest killing jesus uh coming out from holt and uh with numbers very similar to stephen king's we've got which 100- is astonishing which is a yeah exactly we're t- we're talking almost 100 hundred and thirty thousand copies wow sold. uh so that uh is tops the the list uh next up we have suzanne summers uh we might remember from Three's Company and sure. her many, many other books called I'm Too Young for This. Uh, the, the subtitle is The Natural Hormone Solution to Enjoy Perimenopause. Uh, she writes a lot of these health books. This one she talks about uh, fighting aging through bioidentical hormone replacement, which is BHRT. She can you know she continues to espouse its benefits, but uh, <coughs> in our review we say whether or not readers support her claims that BHRT works and is safe, they will come away more informed about hormones, knowing that perimenopausal symptoms are real and treatable. So that's at number 10. Uh, coming in at number 16, we have a uh, military history book by Max Hastings, uh, who's written quite a bit on this. Uh, this book is called uh, catastrophe 1914 Europe goes to war and this is about the um, uh, uh, really the beginnings of World War One uh, from uh, August to September of uh, 1914 so it's really that an entire book on that first um, month so is this war. really
1: more for people who already know a lot about World War One and want a, a more in-depth look at that particular time
0: I think those are the people who the, the people who this is going to reach is exactly that audience, though. I, I find with someone like Max Hastings and uh, that his writing, uh, his narrative structure is is solid and fluid enough that you could just jump right in if you wanted to to read about the beginning of the war and then continue uh, with other books Um but yeah, this is definitely, and there's there's a big readership for military history. Oh, absolutely, and I think this is going to uh, appeal for that to, to those readers. And finally, we're just going to drop a little bit down to uh, debuting at number nineteen, Richard Dawkins. Uh, autobiography uh, his memoir an appetite for wonder the making of a scientist we call this any. we say that anyone familiar with his work might expect dawkins memoir is well written captivating and filled with fascinating anecdotes and uh on uh, some of these anecdotes include uh when he was at Balliol college in oxford he um kind of sadly recalls uh, minor acts of bullying during these days. Uh, and, but he doesn't go into too much detail other other than, uh, uh, than that. It's a well-written book, but the review says at times it's it's just kind of cursory mm-hmm. through some details that you want to know about, and that's the non-fiction bestseller list. And I'm curious to see, you know, with uh, Marcella Hazan's uh, passing on uh, Monday to see, she's got legions of fans, and I want to be curious to see how her books sell by next week
1: I, I was wondering the same thing about Tom Clancy right. actually the news of whose death we found out about yesterday right. and um, that's that's definitely there's often a boost sad as that yeah. is uh, when people go oh yeah I remember those books and, and I wonder them up again
0: and I wonder with Tom Clancy who's written so much I mean Marcella Hazan has only really written four books mm-hmm. uh, but with Tom Clancy I wonder which books people are going to go back and 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 order or buy
1: i i think they're just you know there are are going to be a couple that that jump to the top
0: uh and
1: he's he's done a lot but i my guess is that people are going to go all the way back to the beginning Mm. of his career to the Mm. books that really made him famous but it'll be interesting to see how many places his name shows up on our bestseller list next week
0: yeah exactly exactly I think that's it for our uh, nonfiction and fiction bestseller list. I'm Mark Rotella.
1: And I'm Rose Fox. And this is Publishers Weekly Radio.
0: So next, I'll interview Rose about the process and experience of editing an anthology of speculative fiction from the margins of history. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm Mark Rotella.
1: And I'm Rose Fox. And you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City.
0: Today, Rose has offered to talk about editing Long Hidden. It's an anthology of speculative fiction from the margins of history. Hello, Rose.
1: Hi, Mark. It's nice to be here. (laughs) Thank you so much for coming on the
0: show. I, I want to ask first, what is speculative fiction?
1: This anthology specifically was conceived first from the historical standpoint. So I'm actually going to t- kind of tackle it from th- from that angle. The idea is to tell stories from history that were badly told uh, or not told at all. So, for example, the stories of people who are not in positions of power. This is what we mean by the margins of history. Uh, people who have been marginalized throughout, uh, conquered people, enslaved people, laborers, women, mm-hmm. queer people, um, religious minorities, atheists, uh, pretty much much at anyone you can think of who, who doesn't have that sort of dominant European, white, straight male narrative. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we started with that idea, and we being myself and my co-editor, Daniel Jose Older, and our uh, publishers across genres, and uh, because we all have a lot of connections in the speculative fiction writing community, uh, people who diverge from real history or the real world in whatever way whether it's going into the future or reimagining the past or you know, inventing whole new worlds uh, we decided that we wanted to put a speculative spin on this partly because uh, there is a long history within speculative fiction of using speculative elements as metaphors for things that happen in the real world. So, for example, you might have a first contact novel about we go to the stars and we meet an alien species. And this is in a lot of ways analogous to what happened when Europeans showed up in the Americas and met the local natives. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. And these metaphors are used as kind of a safe way to explore things that might otherwise be difficult. There's some first contact novels that are, um, in a lot of ways, about relationships between men and women, about how people who are even just slightly different from you can still seem like an alien species for example Uh, or there are a lot of books now about paranormal entities like werewolves and vampires living among humans and the struggles that they have to have rights to be recognized to be free to live their lives that absolutely parallel civil rights struggles so we wanted to take those metaphors and and sort of put another layer on them we wanted to say you know let's not just talk about marginalized people in metaphors. Let's not erase them from our books by replacing them with literal aliens or literal monsters um, because they are so often seen as metaphorical aliens or metaphorical monsters. And instead let's put them back in these stories. Let's give them these stories that still have the speculative elements. So there's a real layering there.
0: So instead of say the uh, Suki Stackhouse books uh, or it, it that true blood comes from, where you''re right. we're talking about vampires uh, werewolves uh, sprites you 're now with 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 this anthology we 're not using uh these other creatures or what have you, where this is basically using humans.
1: Yes. Um, So these are, uh, all the stories are set in real historical times. Mm. uh, And our our window is pretty much from 1400 through 1920. We really wanted to avoid more recent history uh, because it's very difficult to write about that in certain ways. And um, again, it's like that metaphor. It's a little easier at some remove, but also because so much Fiction uh, and so much speculative mm-hmm. fiction is set in the 20th century and right. the 21st century, and so we we wanted to really go back um, to the times when fewer stories are are told and when it's very easy to imagine a world that's really whitewashed. Um, to to you know think of uh, India as not really having existed until the British showed up, mm-hmm. for example. Right. We 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 wanted to to undermine that to say, um, you know marginalized people have existed throughout history and they've been real people they are our ancestors they are people who are like us and uh, instead of just giving way to the the victors telling the stories of history uh, we want to to bring those historical stories to life we're getting just an incredible range of submissions right now the process we're going through is looking through the about 250 submitted stories and deciding which ones to include
0: so you're pretty early on in the process then yeah Yeah.
1: we we were open to submissions through uh i guess the end of august and since then we've just been going through and deciding which stories to take and daniel and i have very different tastes so uh, which is good oh yeah it's great um it's a real treat to work with him he's wonderful to work with but it's been very interesting to see which stories jump out at each of us and which ones jump out at both of us.
0: And with the submission guidelines, did you specify a certain era?
1: Oh yeah, we, we were very clear on that. Um, though you'd be amazed, some people just don't read the guidelines or they just assume that we'll make an exception for them because they're very special. Uh, we did not make an exception for anyone. 1400 to 1920. That was what we mm. specified. We emphasized we want worldwide stories, not just the Americas. Uh, we asked for people to handle certain things carefully. For example, um, sexual assault is a real part of the lives of marginalized people throughout history. This is a thing that is perpetrated by the people in power against the powerless to keep them powerless and to demonstrate power and so we understand that that's a real part of history but we ask people to be cautious and careful when including it because it is so easy for it to turn into this this sort of pornographic titillating display of sexual violence Mm. which is not at all what we wanted right so we uh we actually have very extensive guidelines which you can see at the website they're still at uh, longhidden.com um and uh the title of the book itself uh, comes from a, a paraphrased quote from the Buddha, which is, uh, three things cannot remain long hidden, the sun, the moon, and the truth. And so we are trying to reveal the truth. We're, we're looking at the truths that have been hidden for a long time. And so we didn't want to shy away from those truths, but we also wanted them to be addressed respectfully um, and carefully. So uh, we got some submissions that were from the perspectives of white people who then go among the minorities and are educated. And we're like, no, 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 this is not the story that we want. What we want is from the minority perspective. Mm. Uh, right. we, we want the stories that don't get told. We want the perspective characters we don't see. Uh, and just It's actually been very emotionally wrenching sometimes reading these stories. There's so much power in them and there's so much pain in them. We're seeing a lot of marginalized authors who are writing their own struggles Mm. into these historical works. And uh, it's it's just incredible. I think it's going to be a great book.
0: And how long do you think the book will be? Do you have uh, any parameters? That we you do. Um,
1: we we did a Kickstarter when we first started the uh, the anthology project, and we specified um, that we were going to include about twenty stories. But we said if we passed our goals and we made a stretch goal, then we'd be able to pay more. We're paying professional rates. Um, uh, I mean, as determined by the Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers of America. Right. So anyone who sells a oh, story. Really? Long hidden will be eligible for CivOne membership. That was one of the things we really wanted to do. We care a lot about um, about helping creators and about right. you know, paying fair wages for their work. Uh, and so we said, if we raise more money, we can buy more stories. And we actually uh, went all the way to our stretch goal. It was really an incredible. Heady thing watching all these people come from all over the place to fund this anthology and um so we're going to have about 30 stories or about 150,000 words. It's a it's a big book.
0: Wow. Oh, yeah. it sounds wonderful. Yeah,
1: it's it's really exciting.
0: Well, hopefully you'll be able to uh talk to us more, you know, me more, our audience more as the uh, book progresses and it'll be interesting to see I think how a book an anthology is put together from yeah. the editor
1: I mean I've I've never done this before. I've yeah. wanted to be an anthology editor since I was very small. You know some some kids want to be ballerinas or astronauts and uh, I wanted to be an editor. <laughs> well, how did you
0: how did did you approach the publisher how did how did this come oh about?
1: it all happened on twitter um there's some folks who were talking about right. how there was this sort of invisible 500 years yeah. um, basically from from 1492 when columbus shows up and then something something smallpox something slavery something martin luther king and <laughs> like like there was there was just all this history that was that was erased that nobody knew anything about right. um right. that from the moment essentially that Columbus landed in the Americas, the story of the Americas became the white man's story. And so we were, I was just talking about this with a couple of people. I was like, wow, that would make a great anthology idea. And the next thing I know, Daniel, who's a, a friend of mine, was like, yeah, yeah, that would be amazing. Um, and then the publishers, pop up and go hey you know that sounds like something we'd want to publish and all on twitter all on twitter it happened in the space of like an hour it was it was just incredible and then i mean there were a lot of emails back and forth after that yeah 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 do we really want to do this and are we all you know do they have room in their publishing schedule and do daniel and i have room in our freelancing schedules and all of that Uh, but it was just like the idea just grabbed us all and we really wanted to make it happen
0: and one last question what tell us a little bit about the the publishing house
1: Um, Cross Genres is a small press, a small independent press. They do speculative fiction uh, exclusively, and they really focus on marginalized stories. Mm -hmm. And um, they're just, they're doing some incredible work. They have uh, an anthology of of stories about fat women. They have an anthology of uh, stories about laborers Mm. and um, manual labor, and the people who do it and uh, you know it's it's really they they publish novels they publish Daniel's collection of uh cubano New York ghost stories, which is superb um and novels like ink by Sabrina vorvolias, which is uh, about it 's a it 's an immigration parable essentially right. uh, set in in the uh, rather dystopian near future uh, they do They do really good work and they do very earnest, honest work. You know you can just tell sometimes that something is kind of a a labor of love, yeah, not sure. in the sense of well i guess we 'll forgive its flaws, but just in the sense that people really put their heart into this there is There is no cynicism in cross genres they uh they're really sincere about wanting to publish works that reveal hidden voices in some ways long hidden is is uh, an encapsulation of what they do um, we're just taking a specifically historical uh, approach to it rather than uh, looking at the future or a more fantastical approach but Um, they're they're just they're terrific to work with it's been very smooth so far
0: oh it sounds wonderful and good luck on it
1: well thank you um right now the the good luck is needed to read through the 150 stories that i haven't read yet we've gone through about 100 of them Mm -hmm. give or take uh and uh, 150 to go and then we'll uh we've made a, a few acceptances which i i can't Tell sure. publicly, yeah, yeah. Yep. um and uh, getting edits on a few more. I'm so excited as we as we do edits on these stories. We're working with some really wonderful writers, mm. and uh, the way that they take direction, they take edits, and then they come back with something that's even better is just phenomenal.
0: Published and unpublished writers, or oh, most yeah. of them, published. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Um, I I I think. I think most of those stories we've accepted so far are from published authors, but some of them are from people I've never heard of. Wow. Uh, And uh, we really wanted to have open submissions. We cared a lot about that. We wanted to be open to stories from uh, a wide range of people. We emphasized we really wanted stories by people who are in the present day, marginalized by people of color, by queer people, by trans people, uh, people who who really could speak from their own hearts. Uh, about this topic. And so we're going to have this incredible gloriously diverse table of contents. I'm so excited.
0: Oh, it sounds wonderful. Yeah,
1: it's uh it's it's been a it's been a great project. I really had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> when I started I mean I know how to I know how to edit fiction. I've done a lot of right. that but I don't know how to put an anthology together and just the process of it. I was like, well I guess I'll make a Google Docs spreadsheet and that will be our <laughs> submission log. And so that's what we're using as a submission log. And uh, I, at one point Daniel said, well do you want to start with reading the ones that I've said yes I like this or the ones i've said no i don't cuz he was ahead of me in the reading i said actually i'm going through them in alphabetical <laughs> order because that's, <laughs> that's just pretty- the simplest way for me to do it i have them sure. all in a folder i downloaded them all to a folder and i just open one document at a time i just i just go a through z oh,
0: i look forward to reading the stories in there
1: yeah i i i, I I'm really, really happy with how it is so far. I think it's going to be
0: great. Great. Well, I'm Mark Rotella.
1: And I'm Rose Fox. And this is Publishers Weekly Radio.
0: Next up, we've got PW Nonfiction Reviews editor Jasmine Chan, who will give us a sneak preview of this year's big holiday gift book. So stay tuned.
1: Welcome back. I'm Rose Fox.
0: And I'm Mark Rotella. And you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City.
1: Every week we get insider info from one of the editors at Publishers Weekly, and today PW Nonfiction Reviews editor Jasmine Chan will tell us which books to look for when we're doing our holiday gift shopping, which is coming up awfully soon. Hi, Jasmine. Hi, Rose. Hi, Mark. Hello. So thank you very much for this very timely look. Um, we were just talking about how Christmas romances are starting to show up on the bestseller list, and that means it is time to think about gift shopping. So uh, tell us a little bit about what you've got on your list. Well, even though
2: it is 75 degrees and sunny outside it may be time to start looking at gift books for the holiday season yesterday my co-worker annie was asking me what exactly makes a gift book and in this case these are books that i think would make good gifts and perfect and which i think are really cool and quite special mm-hmm. So the first one I want to talk to you about is the Wes Anderson collection by New Yorker writer Matt Zoller Seitz. This one's coming out from Abrams on October 8th. It's $40, um, really gorgeous, hardcover, large format coffee table book with 400 color and black and white photos. So this one is definitely a gift that would be perfect for Wes Anderson fans. And I would argue that... Part of the reason why you go to see a Wes Anderson film is for the art direction. Mm-hmm. And, and mm-hmm. This, this book really celebrates the art direction, the costume design. You see storyboards and unpublished photos and a lot of artwork that was produced just for this book. The intro is by novelist Michael Chabon. And this is is just really a collector's edition, and multiple PW editors were clamoring for a copy when
1: the review is yeah. is done. Now, I I didn't recognize Anderson's name at first because I I don't go to a lot of movies. Um, but then I started looking down the list, and I'm like, oh yeah, Rushmore, The Royal mm-hmm. says so He's he is very visual. Uh, like those those are movies that have very. Visually stuck in my mind, uh, even after I've mostly forgotten what they're about. And so uh, I think this uh, sounds like a, a really good person to get this kind of treatment. Yeah, he's it
2: was, he's done the Royal Tenenbaums, Fantastic Mr. Fox last year. Moonrise Kingdom came out. I think I just saw in the most recent fashion shows there was an entire. Collection inspired by the costumes for the character Susie in Moonrise Kingdom, so he he has a really defined aesthetic, and sure. you're you're either really into it or you're not. <laughs> so the the book is for the people who who are Wes Anderson fans, and also um, Matt Zoller sites he's a great writer, and the there's an interview between Wes Anderson and the author throughout the book, interwoven between all the pictures.
0: Great, and Abrams does some beautiful books, as well. They do. Fantastic. So, what else you got?
2: So then, the next one was is definitely another PW editors all want to copy um, type of book. Uh-huh. Even though this is technically a YA title, it's Rookie Yearbook Two, which is edited by Internet Wonderkin Tavi Gevinson, who is from my hometown of Oak Park, Illinois. So. Me and my sister support everything that Tavi does. <laughs> <laughs> this is from the publisher Drawn and Quarterly. It comes mm-hmm. out October 1st, so the launch is, is this week. It's 29.95, and it's a paperback. So Tavi is going to be on the Jimmy Fallon show tonight to promote the book. If you're a Tavi fan, you can look up her Jimmy Fallon appearance from last year in which she teaches Jimmy Fallon about how to bitch face properly. Oh, so right. I remember that. hopefully we can say that on the PW Radio Show. Oh, sure absolutely. Can. <laughs> we can say whatever we like. Now tell
0: us a little bit about what the Rookie yearbook is.
2: So Rookie is a uh, very popular website that Tavi launched in 2011 when she was just 14. So... Mm. Some of the staff are adults in the world, journalists. Um, She has business backing. But there are also a lot of teenage writers and photographers and illustrators working Mm -hmm. on the staff and plenty of 20 and 30-something women who are huge fans of her work, even though we are clearly not her target audience. (laughs) Um, It's it's for really smart, thoughtful girls. And I think it's something that a lot of women in their 20s and 30s wish would have existed When they were kids And definitely didn't And Tavi's a Was Founded rookie From what I know um, Partly in response To her Admiration for Sassy magazine Which was The magazine that everyone wanted to read when I was in high school. So she's really into the 90s, (laughs) (laughs) which which is um, quite charming. And in our review of Rookie Yearbook One, which chronicled the first year of the website, we said that it's a lucky teen who receives this book as a gift and a smart one who picks it up for herself. So this book chronicles the second year of content from the online magazine, and it has even more celebrity contributors than year one, including... Judy Bloom, Lena Dunham, um, Mindy Kling. She even has contributions from Morrissey and Molly Ringwald. Really? And oh, the cartoonist going Chris back to Ware. The 80s. She she is a very learned teenager. Yeah, great. I mean, she has not yet graduated from high school and she's already founded a website that has one million page views after launching for six days and she'll be giving a talk during the New Yorker festival. So I'm pretty sure she is the only teenager being interviewed on stage at the New Yorker Festival.
0: That's pretty impressive.
2: That's fantastic. So I think the book tour is also going to take her to Brooklyn, LA, Portland, and Seattle. And it's really a movement across the country. Like Whenever there's a rookie event, all these teenage girls congregate, and and Tavi is their star. So the book also includes stickers and tarot cards, and really, what more could you ask for from a gift book?
0: (laughs) Sounds great. What else you got, Jasmine?
2: Um, Switching gears, I wanted to tell you about two fine arts books, Mm -hmm. um, both from major publishers. One is Painted on 21st Street, Helen Frankenthaler from 1950 to 1959 by John Elderfield. So this one is also um, coming out from Abrams, but in... Association with the Gagosian Gallery. So, this one is um, a little bit more rarefied. It's a $100 hardcover that came out in September. We gave it a starred review. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's associated with the spring 2013 exhibition of Frankenthaler's work at the Gagosian Gallery. And it shows her paintings from the 1950s. And when the show was exhibited earlier this year, it was the first time these paintings were shown together in four decades. Hmm. Art critics have said that she produced her most original work in the 50s in her studio on East 21st Street, right near these offices. And mm. the book features an essay by um, Elderfield, who is, the, who is the chief curator emeritus of painting and sculpture at MoMA and includes essays by Frank O'Hara. Um, we had to return our copy of this book because obviously $100 books don't come <laughs> Plentifully, and
0: <laughs> they don't grow on trees, and, right?
2: And sometimes they have to be returned to the publisher, but it, right. they, the book was really special. I mean, it's really well produced. It's, um, it's it's something that I would imagine that art lovers would love to have around and flip through regularly. So, what what type of art is it? I'm not familiar with the artist. Um, she is a painter, and I think she came in the era after Jackson Pollock, and was perhaps someone who didn't receive enough attention during her day. Mm-hmm. So it's it's really drawing attention to a, an artist who probably should have had that acclaim in life, but now it's coming a little later. Mm-hmm. And the the next book is Art Cities of the Future, 21st Century Avant-Garde by the editors of Fiden. This one is 79.95 and came out in September. Also a starred review and was just featured in an article a few weeks ago in the New York Times. Um, this one's really interesting because the the format of the book is reader f- really reader friendly, even though obviously not all of us are well versed in contemporary art and mm-hmm. charting like the very cutting edge art movements. In this one, um, a curator from each city introduces the community of what. Feiden editors consider to be the art cities of the future and picks eight artists to represent the scene found there. So that curator contextualizes the art scene and talks about the cultural and political context.
0: And is Oak Park, Illinois in there by any chance? I really wish it was. (laughs) Uh,
2: Wouldn't that be nice? (laughs) Well, it's saying that the cutting edge art is being produced outside of New York, London, and Paris. So I, I would guess the also outside the Midwest. Right. <laughs> okay. So the new art cities that they focus on are Beirut, Bogota, um, a city that's spelled C L U J, I'm not quite sure how to pronounce it in Romania, um, Delhi, Istanbul, Johannesburg, Lagos, San Juan, Sao Paulo, Seoul, Singapore, and Vancouver. And we wrote that any contemporary art fan is sure to come across an unfamiliar talent in the hundreds of meticulously compiled images. The, the book is, is substantial. Um, it has 557 color illustrations. Wow. But, but it's, it's for someone who really who might be a collector, um, who's familiar with the contemporary art world. And I mean, the fine editors are trying to make an argument for why it's important to look mm. outside the, sure. the Western art world
0: fantastic now jasmine knowing you i i can't see any gift book collection being complete without a nod at least one to fashion
2: it's true i am the pw editor on staff who really likes clothes
0: <laughs> <laughs> so you must have something
2: yes so well, i have one serious one to tell you about and one more um That is more of a bonbon of a book. Okay, good. So this one is Diana Vreeland Memo's The Vogue Years, which is put out by Rizzoli. Um, It's $55 and comes out this month. Mm -hmm. It's edited by uh, the grandson of the Vogue editor, um, Alexander Vreeland, and has contributions by former Vogue editors Polly Mellon and Grace Mirabella and Susan Train, the Paris bureau chief of Condé Nast. Great. So for, for people who follow fashion, I mean, it's... (laughs) <laughs> and for those who don't, let me explain. Um, Diana Breland <laughs> was um, the editor-in-chief of Vogue from 1962 to 1971. She makes a lot of very dramatic pronouncements. A quote that I found from the book, you, you really just need to flip through the book and you can pick a quote at random and it will, it will be full of personality. So this one I found is from 1969. And in her memo, she says, I have just sent in some fake leather to Mrs. Ingersoll from France. I think it is absolutely superb. Please don't miss it. It comes in every known color. It will change the course of history. (laughs) (laughs) So the memos have that flavor. And apparently the way she did business was not to have meetings or brainstorming sessions with her staff. The way she communicated with her Photographers, designers, and writers was by dictating memos by phone from her apartment in the morning, and then she would come into work and f- see the typed memos, and then add something um, by hand, and that was how she communicated with the whole team. Really? So it's it's like a peek into the the brain of like a creative genius, and also I mean part of the reason why following fashion is fun is to peek into this world that you don't necessarily. Um, Commune in on a daily basis, and sure. here her memos are are to people like Richard Avedon, Oscar de la Renta, Diane von Furstenberg. Um, she she has a a lot of memos that say, "Oh, we we must make better use of this girl," and it turns out to be Lauren Hutton. And she she picks okay. out people who she she earmarks as future stars, and the the way the book is structured is it has the memos between Reiland and these various artists and then it shows the resulting fashion shoot that happened because of all the, the memos and the brainstorming that happened that way so it, it's really from another era
0: Oh, This sounds fascinating. Is this book on your desk? Um, I had to give
2: it back to Annie, actually.
0: Okay. Well, let me go to Annie's office then.
2: Okay. So you you can poach (laughs) the book from Annie's desk.
0: I think it's fascinating. I really do.
2: The last book I want to tell you about is the book that I referred to as a... um, Definitely a little bonbon of a fashion book. It's called It by Alexa Chung, and it comes out from Penguin. It's on sale October 29th, and it's $30. So our review of this book was actually a little mixed, but the, the finished book turns out to be quite beautiful, and I can imagine, say, the parents of a fashion-loving teenage girl picking up this book for her and it being very well-received. So the book is billed as a style guide, a memoir, a scrapbook. It's it's a really nicely sized pastel pink hardcover with a close up of um Alexa Chung's glittery eye on the cover. So she is kind of the inheritor um of the it girl title. She's kind of considered the new Kate Moss. Like everyone takes pictures of what she wears going to the market and going to all the parties. She has a really um a really keen sense of style That is clearly her dressing for herself Not her trying to be sexy for men And it's it's much more of a A mod Like a quirky right. girl look yeah, so it's that sounds like fun Yeah And she's, she's known for her street style And it, I mean, the, the book is kind of Light on copy, heavy on photos And it talks about How she's inspired by Jane Birkin And Mick Jagger And the movie Annie Hall And I, it's, it's Includes her illustrations and photos from her life, and it's just quite fun. Oh, it's um,
1: wonderful! This is not going to be confused with Stephen King's. It, Um, I don't think so. Although, (laughs) isn't that a good question? Yeah, it it, it doesn't have a glittery pink (laughs) hardcover, so I think it should be fairly easy to tell upon visual (laughs) inspection. If it if it became known as a
2: fashion book, that would be so funny.
1: Well, I'd cross cloud, genre. Cloud face paint, maybe <laughs> not, not so much. About fashion. <laughs> Great. Thank you so much, Jasmine. It's, uh, it's definitely giving us some good ideas. Thank you, Mark and Rose.
0: Well that's it for today's show. I'm Mark Rotella.
1: And I'm Rose Fox, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio.
0: If you want to hear your question on the air next week, just email it to PW radio at publishersweekly dot com or tweet it at Pubweekly Radio. That's Pub WKLY Radio on Twitter. We'd love to hear from you.
1: You can hear this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio on our website at publishersweekly.com slash PWRadio and on iTunes, available for you to listen absolutely free. Check the site every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening.
0: You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show.